Good morning. It's good to be back in the house of the Lord. Um, no, in the past 10 months, I've been away, as Neil said, and um, I've been convinced that nothing in this world can fill that bizarre, misshapen, irreverent hole that looks like root and branch right here. Um, so it feels really good to be back, and it feels good to be in this space and to see these faces after a long time gone. So like Neil said, I've been gone for 10 months on a leave of absence. <clears throat> first, per first reason for that was to complete my doctoral exams, which I did do, thank God, last year, yeah. And then since that, um, the past few months have been about discernment, specifically discerning what my future will be with Root and Branch. And this discernment came to, oh, Hanley. Whoa, blast from the past. Good to see you, friend. <laughs> This discernment became necessary for a few reasons. The plan all along was for me to complete my exams in November and then come back here around Christmas time. But as life would have it, complications arose. One of them, for one, my wife Sarah and I are expecting a baby. Um, less than three weeks away, we're down to like two weeks, but it really could happen anytime. So she might be going into labor as we speak, I don't know. Yeah, we'll find out soon. <laughs> There'll be some, it's over there, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we don't know, there's lots of things we don't know about this baby. We don't know where on the gender spectrum he or she will land, but we do know that having a baby changes things. This would be one thing if we lived in the city of Chicago and I could take care of my pastoral duties in one moment and then run over to care for my, my parental duties. But about a year ago, we decided to move an hour and a half away so that we could be close to Sarah's church and we could eliminate at least one of our commutes. So that's where we live now. And on top of that commute, I continue to have responsibilities down in Hyde Park, where I'm trying to write a dissertation and learn how to be an intellectual, one small step at a time. So I'm telling you this all, all of this background because these circumstances have occasioned a great deal of doubt and uncertainty for me in this past year. What should I do? How can I remain faithful to all of these blessed and challenging responsibilities and commitments? And beyond that, the theological, theological question is what are God's intentions for me as a pastor, as a husband, as a wannabe scholar, as a soon-to-be father? Does it even make sense anymore to talk about God's intentions? Does God have intentions? So I'll risk assuming that while the particular circumstances I've described um, may be unique to me, this problem of discerning how best to live this one life we've been given is a universal one. It's a human problem. No, no one has a blueprint for how to be you. And thank God, five-year plans, whether written by Stalin or super type A overachievers like the one in front of you, always bear a hint of cruelty about them. They tend to strangle the life out of life in order to make it predictable. So we humans are left to improvise. We muddle through these questions and doubts in the dark, and we grasp for answers that we can only see that were true or false or right or wrong in hindsight. The good news is we've been improvising for a long time, and so there's all kinds of bizarre ways humans have derived to try to discern God's intentions for us. In the ancient Middle East, there was a practice called ecstispacy. Ecstispacy. 
In this practice, the ancient Israelites would take a goat, sacrifice it, gut it, they would remove the pulsating liver, and they would read the splotches and blots on this liver and discern what God's will was. So the idea was that God wrote God's, God wrote God's will down on goat livers in the form of like a Rorschach test. Like you could, you could discern what God was up to here. God chose entrails to instill God's will. And the idea was that priests could then interpret what that all meant. But later on, God swapped out goat livers for stone tablets. And thus we have Moses carrying down the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai. And you might think that letters and words would give us more clarity on what God's will was than splotches and blots. But as it were, that the Hebrews inventor derived another 613 laws to make sense of these first 10 laws because they weren't quite specific enough. This is because human life is complex and you require some gritty detail in all of this stuff. So I've, I've just brought a couple for us today um, to get a sense of this. Exodus 21, 28, 32 um, is a response to the question, what does God will in a particular situation when one's ox goes about goring people? <laughs> Pressing question for, for the ancient Israelites. One of my favorites, Deuteronomy 23, 1, responds to the pressing question of, does God will that a man can enter the temple if his testicles have been crushed and penis removed? Read it, Just Deuteronomy 23.1, true story. So whenever even these 613 laws didn't get close enough to the ground for actually how do you live a good life, the Israelites rose up some judges who would make these decisions and settle particular cases in particular situations. This point here of tracing Israelite history is to say that human life is too complex for blueprints. God's intentions in human lives don't work that way. So this is what brings me to Ignatius of Loyola. We had a great quote from him that I will try to summarize here, but um, he was a Spanish military general in the 15th and 16th centuries, and he's known as the founder of the Jesuit order in the Catholic Church. But he also wrote a book called The Spiritual Exercises, about how to discern the will of God in particular lived human situations. So while others looked to goat livers and law codes and judges for answers to these questions, Ignatius turned inward to the depths of the human soul. That's where you find God's will, he thinks. He tells us that the first step to do these exercises is to reach a state of indifference, which basically means to achieve a certain degree of chill. The idea is that if you're nervous or panicky, you can't hear God's guidance because you've got too many other things kind of bubbling about in your brain to hear God clearly. So become chill. Second step is called the discernment of spirits. So once you're sufficiently chilled, you can turn your attention back on what's going on in those intimate parts of your soul, your inner core. And this is a realm where you have competing thoughts and feelings and wills. And Ignatius thinks that this is where we find God's will. But it's also where, unfortunately, we find the evil spirit, which is working about there in our inner core to deceive us and confuse us. Both spirits, the good spirit and the evil spirit, are hard at work in our soul, creating thoughts and feelings that we perceive when we meditate. The trick then is to discern which of those thoughts and feelings come from God and which ones come from the devil. 
And Ignatius says that the key to tell them apart is to look at the effect they have on your soul. So, if you experience one of these thoughts or feelings as a consolation, that is, if it leads you to feel a prolonged sense of joy, encouragement, confidence, tranquility, love, then that thought or feeling is from God. On the contrary, if you feel desolation, that is, darkness in the soul, toil, lack of love, disquiet, then that comes from the evil spirit. So there's four steps. Chill out. Turn to examine your soul, distinguish between consolations and desolations, and then where you find consolations, there is the will of God, follow that. It's good advice. He's given two practical examples, too, to kind of show how this works. So in the first one, he says, achieve indifference or chill, then call to mind the purpose of human life. Now, this is... For Ignatius, he thinks that the, the fundamental purpose of human life is to praise and glorify God in everything you do. That's not clear what that is, but let's just go with him on that for now. Once you have the, the purpose of human life in your mind, then write down on a sheet of paper all of the things about this decision that will help you achieve that purpose and all the things that will inhibit that purpose. This is basically a way of taking the pros and cons. And he thinks that when you add up the pros and the cons for either side of a decision, you will come to discern God's will. This is what God is calling for you to do. But like I said, this begs a larger question about what does it mean to glorify God in one's life? Just to say that the purpose of human life is to glorify God leaves us unclear about what that actually means. But his second example, I think, helps. He says, again, get into a state of tranquility and indifference. Then imagine yourself on your deathbed. If you were looking back on your present self from the perspective of your deathbed self, which decision should you make? So an example. Pretend I was running for president and say I knew that I could win more votes if I pandered to the most basic, vicious fears of middle-class white Americans. Hard to imagine, I know and say that this, this awful strategy would actually win me the party's nomination. The question for discernment then would be, at the end of my life, would I want myself to have won the nomination if it meant being a fascist? <laughs> or, from that perspective, yeah, hypothetically, or would I regret it and wish I had chosen another path? Now, Ignatius is clear that in order to go through these spiritual exercises, you have to have a conscience, which excludes Donald J. Trump, but you get the picture here. Or another way to think about this um, comes in the, um, the book, a recent book by David Brooks, who is uh, Tim Kim's favorite New York Times op-ed columnist. I know. He says that there are basically two kinds of virtues in human life, and both of them promise to lead to a good life. There's resume virtues, and there's eulogy virtues. So the problem is that these two virtues compete, right? So the things that um, help build your resume are often different than those things that you want people to say about you at your funeral. And by Brooks's lights, the art of a truly good life is to pursue and cultivate the eulogy virtues more than the resume virtues. My point here is that when Ignatius tells us that the purpose of human life is to glorify God, he has something very practical, very this-worldly in mind. 
the way we glorify God is by making decisions now from the perspective of our life viewed as a whole, from the perspective of our deathbeds. The way we glorify God is to cultivate the eulogy virtues more than the resume virtues. Or in other words, I think Ignatius means something like what Irenaeus of Lyon, another Christian saint, this one from the second century, meant when he said this quote, the glory of God is humanity fully alive. The glory of God is humanity fully alive. So the way you make decisions is asking the question, does this make me more fully human or does it make me less human? And this connects perfectly then with what Ignatius says about feelings of consolation and desolation. Of course, those things that lead me to become more fully human should feel consoling. That's what I'm meant to do. And those things that detract from my humanity ought to feel like desolation. But, this is my last point on Ignatius, there is, he makes a final and crucial distinction. Sometimes we think, what we think is consolation doesn't help us live a fully human life. The momentary thrill of heroin, for example, might feel like consolation when in fact it's actually destroying our life. So Ignatius contends that true consolation, that which is truly from God and that which truly leads us towards the most fully human life, overflows beyond one human life. True consolation in the soul spills out beyond the soul to console others. It's when the love you feel that comes from God in the intimacy of your heart leads you out of yourself, out of your heart to love others. So in other words, you know something is God's will, you can discern that this is from God, when your own cup of love boils over and blesses others in a community of love. So for the past four years as pastor of Root and Branch, I have witnessed this overflowing bubbling of love into a community. I've experienced the sweet consolation of watching a community of people seek out the glory of God by becoming fully alive, individually and as a, as a group. I've been privy to real talk conversations with folks who are literally attempting to discern how to live into the most full, vivacious version of themselves. And I've watched folks walk in the door one month and be so moved by the kind of love they experience here in this place and in this community that the next month they're committed to leading it and, and trying to make it better and grow and, and um, carry on. So what started as this small economy of love amongst three starry-eyed divinity students has boiled over into a community of love that's pursuing the abundant life together and intent to invite others into that life. By being a part of this community myself, I have lived a decidedly more human life than I had otherwise. And in light of this evidence, I can say with as much confidence as human beings are allowed that God's will is happening here. Root and Branch is participating in and responding to God's will that all human lives would flourish that our lives would be, as Christ puts it in John 10.10, exceedingly abundant lives. Not just living, not just surviving, but abundant fullness. And so, 
My separation from this community over the past 10 months hasn't been easy. I know that every day I'm not participating in and helping lead this church. I'm missing out on part of what's made my life so abundant for these last three and four years. But the further trouble with the abundant life is that, that glorifies God is that the good things that make our life abundant are tragically in competition with one another. The good things that make our life abundant are tragically competing for time and attention with one another. Human beings are free to do all kinds of things that make for a good life, but we are not free to do all the things that make for a good life. At least not all at once. And so we have to make tough decisions wrapped in doubt and faith. Even with all of these ways to discern God's will, we're still left in a kind of hazy doubt that leaves us grasping and, and wishing for more certainty. The truth is, the love I've known here, the love that's transformed me into a different person, makes me want to be a pastor at Root and Branch for a long, long time. The love of teaching and scholarship makes me want to continue my studies at the Divinity School. The love that's boiling over in my marriage with Sarah has called me to move damn near to Iowa, and it's calling me to create new life with her, and it continues to call me to be a good husband and father. And while I believe that all of these things glorify God and make for abundant life, they just can't happen all at the same time. Again, these are my particular circumstances, but I think they point to a more universally human condition. Each of us has a nearly infinite number of ways to live this life, and none of us have, has infinite time, bodies, love, energy. So this is all to say that I have discerned a call to take a permanent step back from my role as pastor of this community in order to give myself more fully to these other vocations of husband, father, student. And I have come to this conclusion through a thick shroud of doubt, a doubt that continues to envelop me as I say these words right now. A doubt that even the most careful discernment of pros and cons does not resolve. But there is more than doubt that envelops me here this morning. I'm enveloped by an immense gratitude for what this church has meant for me. Root and branch, its people and its pastors, its ironic and faithful way of being the church has changed me deeply. I can't walk into other churches the way I used to because I've seen here what church can be. I've seen what church can be when intellectual honesty cuts through lazy thinking. I've seen what church can be when emotional realness cuts through bourgeois niceness. I've seen what church can be when musical virtuosity opens up worshipful spaces the heart for God it had. I'm filled with gratitude today for the way I've seen folks at Root and Branch give sacrificially of their time, their cooking skills, their student loan-racked income, because they've been blessed by what's happening here and because they want to see it go on. I'm filled with gratitude today for my brothers Neil and Tim, the experiences we've shared in visioning and building up this church have been the highlight of my ministry and have made me a bolder, more creative pastor. This is all in addition to the ways that you each have made me a lighter-hearted, funnier, I hope, 
and more culturally sensitive creature. And all of this combines, combined pales in comparison to the friendship and camaraderie that sustains me and that has blessed me. So I'm filled with holy doubt and lots of gratitude, but I'm also filled with great hope for where this community is going. If the abundant life of which Christ speaks has any future in this world, it will be because communities like this keep that vision alive. If future generations are going to risk, resist the not so abundant life offered by market forces and consumer capitalism, it will be because they tasted another kind of life in breaking bread and drinking wine around tables with people like you. If our own generation is going to find some way to escape the oppressive loneliness and vacant meaninglessness of contemporary life, it will be because people sitting in this space right here will be so moved in their soul by a love greater than themselves that they couldn't help but want it to boil over and bless others. Those are my hopes for this community, and it's my great gratitude to have been pastor here. May it be so. Amen.